Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back, Tom. So at this point in the series, we're digging into a few particularly controversial issues highlighted in your book in a little bit more detail to look at what the evidence has to say about what grows the pie. And there's probably no more controversial issue than our favourite topic of executive pay. And that's what we're going to discuss today. And I thought we might broadly split it into three topics, the level of pay, how pay links to performance, and then talk about some of the debates about the structure of pay and reform of pay. So let's start with the level of pay. So in the US, the average CEO earns about $15 million a year. In the UK, it's a little bit lower at um, something under £4 million a year. Similar levels uh, across advanced economies and increasingly in developing economies as well. How can we possibly justify these sorts of levels of pay for one person? So the main argument that defenders of high pay will suggest is that the CEO has a huge effect on her firm. So it's indeed true that the CEO is only one employee out of perhaps thousands, but the CEO has a large effect because they set the strategic direction, they might motivate the other employees, they might shape corporate culture, and they make important strategic decisions such as whether to buy another company, to sell part of its business units, to expand, and and so forth. Now, this is something that you can actually evaluate with some data. So one thing you might think you could look at is what happens when a CEO leaves a company. For example, when Tijan Tiam left Prudential and moved to Credit Suisse, Prudential shares fell by 3.1%, which was £1.3 billion, and Credit Suisse's rose by 7.8%, which is £2 billion. You might think, well, that just proves that the CEO is worth so much more than his salary. But there we run into the causation correlation thing is actually the decline of Prudential when he left might not be because Tijan Tian was a great CEO. It might be that his departure signaled some problems within the company. And so when he left, that just showed that there were skeletons in the cupboard. So there is a study by Dirk Genter, um, Egor Matveyev, and Lucas Roth, which looks at what happens when a CEO dies. So that is not voluntary in, in, in most cases. And what they found was that when younger CEOs die, the stock price falls by 4%. When older CEOs die, it increases by 4%. Now, the key message isn't that young CEOs are better than old CEOs, but that the choice of CEO matters. So the difference between a good and bad CEO is around 8%, the difference between plus 4 and minus 4. And so because CEOs can have such a large effect on firm value, then it does suggest that it's worth paying top dollar to get top talent. And so, I mean, just doing the maths there, if a typical large firm is worth, I don't know, $20 billion, something like that, then if the difference between a good or bad CEO is, you know, is getting on for 10% of that, you're talking about a worth to the firm shareholders of a couple of billion dollars of, of having a good versus bad CEO. So that sort of makes the salary pale into insignificance somewhat, doesn't it? 
Yeah, so that's right, because certainly CEU pay should be fair. But often people think fairness is pay which is of similar magnitude to other workers. So they'll often look at the ratio of the CEO pay to worker pay to decide whether it's fair. So a CEO in the US gets paid $10 million. That's maybe 300 times the average work, and that seemed to be unfair. But I think fair pay is pay that is commensurate with your contribution. And often the contribution of a CEO depends on the size of the firm. So if the CEO adds conservatively 1% to firm value, then in a $20 billion firm, that's $200 billion. And therefore, if you're adding $200 million, then a pay of, of $10 million isn't actually so egregious. So one of the arguments that you could put against this is that all we've done here is to look at the impact on firm value as measured by shareholders. So maybe shareholders themselves are just caught up in the whole kind of myth of the CEO issue and, um, and are misjudging it. Is, is there anything that we can say about actual kind of subsequent operating performance outturns or anything like that that show the difference between good and bad CEOs and what, what difference that can make? Yes, there is. So the, the study that I just mentioned looks indeed only at the, the stock price. But there was a separate study which uh, looked at Denmark and looked at the effect of not CEO deaths, but the deaths of CEO family members. So the idea here is that if the CEO is bereaved, then they'll be distracted and they won't be able to, to focus on the firm. Now, that doesn't matter if the CEO doesn't add value, but it does if the CEO is indeed creating a lot of value for the company. And so it looked at Denmark because there was a lot of data on family relationships, but many of the companies there were private companies without stock prices. So the only thing that they could look at was uh, long-term profitability, and they similarly found some negative effects of CEO bereavement. Okay, so we can make strong arguments for why CEO pay is, is as high as it is, but actually based on those numbers, you, you could argue for CEO pay being even potentially 10 times higher than it is today. And, and one of the arguments against CEO pay that's often put is that it's not become so much harder to run companies now than it was 30 years ago, whereas in the early 1980s, typical CEO in the UK, for example, would earn between 30 and 40 times the average worker. Uh, today, it's closer to 150. How can we justify that sort of escalation in the level of CEO pay for, for a job that isn't that different? Yeah, so that is a common argument is that, well, pay should be commensurate to how hard the job is. And if indeed that is the view, then I have, don't have a leg to stand on. It'd be really hard for me to argue that the CEO job is harder now than in, in the past. But I think, again, that's the wrong comparison. So I think part of this is in, indeed the terminology. So we often refer to executive compensation in that, well, that suggests the CEO job is so unpleasant that you need to be compensated for doing it. But in fact, in your former job, Tom, you were PwC's practice was called the reward practice. And I think that's indeed the correct terminology is the reward is what you get for creating value. So what determines pay is not how unpleasant the job is, but how much value you can create. And that can indeed justify the large rise in pay over time, because the one thing that has really changed over the past couple of decades is the size of the firm. So the average firm increased by about sixfold from 1980 to, to 2003. That was where there was a big period of escalation. And why does the size of the firm matter? Well, we often think that the value that a CEO adds is in percentage points. 
sets. Why? Because what you do within a firm is scalable. So if you design a new production process which cuts costs, that has a much larger effect on a larger company. And therefore, just by getting the best CEO, and even if that CEO can only add 1% of firm value compared to the next best alternative, again, 1% of $20 billion is $200 million. And what's interesting is that that can explain not just high pay for the CEO, but why pay has risen across every scalable profession. So it's hard to argue that Alexis Sanchez, the football player, is more talented than Johan Cruyff was, but he gets paid far more. Why? Because the football industry is scalable. J.K. Rowling is not much more talented than Jane Austen, but she gets paid far more because books can be sold worldwide and, and turned into movies. And again, people, going back to the compensation unpleasantness argument, people don't believe that it's painful to be a footballer or a film star or a movie star, but they recognize that that pay is for talent. And similarly, I believe the evidence looking at CEO deaths and CEO bereavements also suggests that CEOs create value so they can have their pay being justified. And I think the thing, one of the things that's really important to me in this debate is that, yeah, the CEO is only one of maybe 5,000, 10,000, even 100,000 workers in the company. But actually, we're not saying that the CEO is the whole story. In fact, that evidence that you pointed to suggests that the CEO is maybe 5 to 10% of the value story. But with firms being as big as they are, that's still an enormous amount of money and therefore something that it's worth shareholders paying for, if you like. And small differences in talent can lead to big differences in, in outcome. But is, isn't there another argument here, which is that just from a fundamental societal fairness point of view, we shouldn't be paying individual CEOs an amount of money that catapults them and their descendants into a totally different world. So there's two responses to that. So, so one is that um, why might there be that fairness consideration to begin with? It might be based on the pie-splitting mentality, the idea that if the CEO is being paid a lot, it's at the expense of everybody else, at the expense of worker wages or maybe climate change initiatives. Um, but again, this can be evaluated with evidence. If indeed pay is linked to performance, which we'll get onto later, the only way that a CEO can be paid a lot is through growing the pie and creating long-term value. So that value is not at the expense of other people. Second is, do we think that there is a concern that there is this inequality from CEOs being paid a lot and also other professions being paid a lot? That there might indeed be that concern, but the best way to address that would not be to just cut CEO pay or cap or restrict CEO pay, but to address high pay in general, because anything which is scalable leads to high pay. And the better way to address that would be to have an even higher tax on high incomes, maybe incomes above £1 million, for example, because this greater inequality is not just a CEO level issue. It's an issue with any talent that is scalable. And this is important, isn't it? Because the, there is a risk here that because it's visible, CEO pay in listed companies becomes a particular point of focus, which could then actually damage the ability of those listed companies to attract the best senior executives compared to private companies. So just talk a bit, little bit more around those comparisons. What work has been done to show the escalation in CEO pay compared with, I don't, I don't know, lawyers and people in private firms and private equity and so on and so forth? Is there compelling evidence that everybody's pay has gone up in these areas? 
There is. So there was an influential paper released uh, about 10 years ago by Steve Kaplan and Josh Rao of Chicago and Stanford, so two really top academics. It was called Wall Street or Main Street, what drives the rising incomes? Is it Main Street? Is it CEOs of these large companies? Well, what they found was actually the rise in CEO pay was less than the rise in other professions, such as private equity or hedge funds or top lawyers. Why? Because those are also scalable professions. Because if you are a great investor, now you're just investing larger pots of capital. So even if you can only add a few percentage points to the value of your assets under management, that's a huge amount of money. And again, what that suggests is that high pay is not just a CEO issue. Yes, we like to highlight the CEO because we like to call them fat cats and like, and their pay gets really scrutinized because it's reported in the media. But what these authors did was they got some creative data in order to try and figure out what was the pay of private equity and hedge funds, which is more under the radar screen. And so what that suggested is that as a visibility issue, rather than an unfairness issue, which leads to CEOs being in such public outrage, So we shouldn't try to address the problem by focusing on CEOs alone, but all highly paid individuals. And this point that CEOs have a particular set of talents and impact on the firm and and to some degree operate in a different market from ordinary workers is one of the clear justifications for, for very different pay levels. But in that context, the response to the COVID pandemic has been very interesting because We've seen this strong desire amongst shareholders and actually executives themselves to demonstrate solidarity between what's been happening with executive pay and what's been happening with wider workforce pay. So we've seen, for example, executives taking pay cuts if they've asked workers to take pay cuts. Uh, What do you make of that and how do you fit that into your framework of pie growing enterprises? I actually think that CEOs taking large pay cuts is, is, is a really important move. Now, you might think that I wouldn't come with that conclusion, because if I took a standard economic argument, it would be that CEO pay is so small compared to firm value. So the idea that we're cutting the CEO's pay and therefore able to furlough fewer workers you're you're probably not saving huge amounts of money. But I do think that the symbolic aspect is important. So here, this is a case where the splitting of the pie actually affects the size of the pie, is that if indeed the CEO is taking a pay cut, then this is one way to ensure that employees still are motivated, even though tough decisions need to be taken, and that greater motivation is important to make sure that the pie doesn't shrink further. Now, why is this argument, I think, in particular to the pandemic times, is that normally, if you if a company was to try to cut its CEO pay, that CEO might leave. This is not just hypothetical. There was a recent example of the Smith and Nephew CEO leaving because he wasn't being paid enough. The stock price fell by 9%. But right now in the pandemic, it's very unlikely that a CEO could go anywhere else. So the normal talent-based arguments on the CEO is so important, you need to make sure you retain her, they don't apply here. So I do think the executives, which are foregoing their salary for maybe three months or even a year, they're indeed doing the right thing to make sure that the pain of the pandemic is widely distributed. Mm. Now, one of the things that is often used to justify high CEO pay is the fact that it's performance-based. And indeed, over the last 20 years, we've seen a, a huge growth in the proportion of the CEO's package that is either paid in stock or based on bonuses or long-term incentives and other, other sorts of incentive plan. 
But there is, you know, a hot debate about whether pay actually is linked to performance. And one of the banes of our life is a, is a study by um, MSCI that looks at pay versus performance. And this appeared again in The Economist's article on uh, executive pay just recently. And this claims to show no correlation between pay and performance at all, which obviously fans the flames of the argument that CEOs are just receiving unjustified payouts without delivering any value. Uh, what, what, what are these sorts of studies missing? This is a really important issue. So people don't complain about CEO pay if it indeed is linked to performance. So really the smoking gun is this charge that pay is not linked to performance. So what MSCI did was it looked at 10-year shareholder returns and plotted a graph of 10-year shareholder returns against CEO pay. And that graph could not have been any flatter. So that suggests that there was no link at all. And also, this has not just been found by the MSCI study, but there were other studies which claim this. And there have been reports presented in the House of Commons saying there is lots of academic evidence that systematically finds no link. However, again, we need to go back to episode two of the podcast on what evidence is. And evidence has to be rigorous. It should be scrutinised in the best peer-reviewed journals to make sure that the conclusions are valid. Because here, any paper which claims to find no link is going to get really covered in the media because that confirms what people would like to be true, but it might not be rigorous. And all of these papers make a huge omission, which is they will look at how performance changes the level of salary and bonuses that a CEO gets, what you and I would call flow pay, which is the new flows of money that the CEO gets. And that indeed is insensitive to performance, but this ignores the biggest part of a CEO's incentives, which are the incentives that stem from her previously granted equity. So in reality, CEOs have a huge amount of money locked up in their firm. For example, Steve Jobs got paid one dollar per day. So under MSCI's measure, Steve Jobs did not care at all about performance. But that doesn't make sense because Steve Jobs did care about performance because he had billions of dollars of his own salary uh, locked up in the company. And so that omission is a major error because there's a study that you and your colleagues did at PwC showing that if the stock price falls by 10%, a UK CEO loses £1.2 million pre-tax, which is substantial. In the US, it's actually $10 million pre-tax. So they have huge sensitivity of pay to performance. Yeah, and actually, the other work that we did there was was showing that if you ignored the pre-existing equity holdings, we broadly replicated the MSCI finding of around zero correlation. But once you put the equity holdings in, that correlation between pay and performance increased to nearly 80%. Although it was interesting that it seemed to be that the relationship was really driven by the equity rather than the complexity of the performance pay. And that's perhaps something that we'll come back to. Another thing that people are often pushing for these days, including institution investors, is that a significant portion of pay should be linked to ESG performance criteria, um, whether that's climate targets or, or other material targets relating to stakeholders that are particularly important for a certain company. How do you view that debate around uh, the use of pay to drive ESG performance? 
So I think pay should be used to drive performance. I think the problem is, is if you try to use pay to drive ESG performance, is that you're going to be very vulnerable to the particular ESG measures that you are choosing to use. And that's an issue that we came up with in, in podcast two, is it's really difficult to find these perfect measures of ESG. For example, you could look at board diversity, and then you could put some ethnic minorities and women on the board, but it might not be that you're encouraging diversity of thought. It might not be that you're encouraging diversity below the boardroom. So instead, I do think that the um, pay should be tied to only the long-term stock price. Now, it's clearly the case that in the short term, the stock price doesn't take into account stakeholder measures, but there's a lot of evidence which we came up with in episode two that in the long term, the stock price does take many ESG factors into account, such as employee satisfaction, such as performance on material stakeholder dimensions. So anything which is material to the company's performance will show up in the long-term stock price. Whereas if you based a bonus measure on particular ESG targets, the CEO might hit those targets to the exclusion of other measures of ESG performance, which are not so quantitative. Yeah, I I think there's a a lot in that. And uh, I, I certainly have a worry that if you look at the ESG targets that are put in place in companies today, you could have a situation where most companies hit their ESG targets without there being any notable improvement in the ESG issues they, they relate to. One counter example, though, that, that I might just put to you, uh, I think the Shell example was was quite an interesting one, where in 2017, they laid out the, their strategy for uh, reducing their net carbon footprint to out to 2050. And investors, uh, particularly Dutch investors, then started pushing them to put some of that into executive pay targets. And, And what was illuminating about that was that it was at the point at which the company had to have discussion with investors about precisely what the targets were going to be in the executive pay plan that it introduced a greater level of specificity as to around timeframes, you know, pace of change, exactly how they were defining some of these things. So I do sometimes think that putting targets into pay brings an element of kind of focus onto the discussion that, that, that can sometimes be be lacking. But I think that works best when you've got, a, as in the case of Shell, a clear kind of dominant ESG target that's out there. I'd agree with that under the current regime. So why was it that it was so powerful in terms of sparking investor engagement? It's because investors have a say on pay vote. Is that because investors get to vote on pay, they have an incentive to scrutinize um, the measures on which pay is based. But that's not the only way to encourage investor engagement. So one idea that you and I have talked about extensively is say on purpose. If instead investors were given a vote on a company's purpose and then had to come up with some targets to ensure that a company was truly delivering on purpose, they would have that same engagement. And actually, if it was a say on purpose, there might be a a broader set of targets, uh, including some qualitative measures, which you wouldn't be able to link pay to in the terms of a formula. But those could be things that a company could report on at least qualitatively in the future. So I think, yes, we do want to encourage investor engagement. But I actually think that say on purpose would be a better way of doing that. Right. Okay. A better, better channel. Yeah. So in terms of where we've got to so far in this discussion, first of all, I think we're finding that the level of pay, the level of CEO pay from a rational point of view is sort of less 
outrageous than, than people might commonly think. Indeed, there are reasonably good arguments for why it's broadly at the level it's at. And we've also found that actually, you know, the link between pay and performance because of the large equity holdings that, that CEOs have is, again, not as out of whack as um, some commentary might lead you to believe. But we're not people who think that there are no problems at all with CEO pay. So, so let's now get into the debate that we've been heavily involved with over the last few years and which is prominent in your book, which is around the structure of pay and how that needs to be reformed to encourage CEOs to grow the pie. So how would you describe the problems with the current model of CEO pay? So one of the main problems with the current model is that it uses long-term incentive plans or LTIPs quite heavily. And you might think, well, why is that a problem? Because long-term incentive plans, shouldn't they encourage long-term behavior? Well, actually, they don't. So, so how an LTIP works is you might have a particular metric or set of metrics, and the CEO is paid a bonus for hitting that threshold. So once you hit that threshold, you get a bonus, and that bonus could increase more and more the better the performance is. But what evidence suggests is that CEOs can engage in some manipulative behavior in order to hit that target. So there's a study based on US data, which finds that CEOs engage in research and development cuts in order to hit targets which are in the bonus. So what that suggests is actually this whole idea of using targets to incentivize performance. Well, it does work. It does incentivize performance, but performance only in the dimension that's being measured. There was a podcast interview that I did of Sue Garrard, formerly of Unilever, um, a, a few months ago, where she talked about you can hit the target, but miss the point. And indeed, excessive tying of CEO pay to performance targets leads to them hitting those targets, even if it's at the expense of long-term value. So what would you propose as an alternative? So I think the alternative is to get rid of those targets and just to pay the CEO with restricted stock. So those are shares that she has to hold on to for five or, or seven years. So why is that an advantage? Well, the important thing to note is that stock is long-term shares. So often people think that, well, the stock price, that makes you only think about shareholders and not stakeholders. But again, as I mentioned earlier, there's evidence that shows that the long-term stock price takes those stakeholder dimensions into account. And importantly, those shares should be held after the CEO's departure to make sure that the CEO has a horizon which expands beyond her tenure. So an example is, going back to Unilever, Paul Polman has retired, but he has to keep 500% of his final salary in shares for one year after his departure and 250% after two years. Now, you might think, well, where does this leave performance targets and so forth? Like, we still want to give the CEO things such as climate change targets, maybe diversity targets and so forth. And isn't your solution too simple? Well, I think we can still have targets and companies should still report on their progress versus targets. But that's a very different thing to linking pay to them. Because when you link pay to those targets, there's the possibility of manipulation. So going back to my own job, Right. As a professor, my teaching evaluations are recorded and they go on my record every year, but my pay is not linked to them. Why? Because if it was, 
there might be incentive to engage in gaming. You might uh, teach easier classes to make them more fun and to get higher ratings. Or maybe in the final lecture, which is the one where the evaluations get given, you sort of make that lecture particularly entertaining and so on. So I think we do need to record these things and report in it transparently. But I think it's a step too far when you explicitly link pay to them. So is there any large scale evidence of the type that we've been favouring so much during this podcast series that that supports this point of view? Yeah, there's two pieces of evidence. So one of them takes um, a simple strategy of buying companies where the CEO has a lot of shares in her firm and selling companies where the CEO has a little stake in her firm. And what they found was that strategy earns four to 10 percentage points per year in terms of long-term stock returns. Now, again, you might think, is this correlation or is this causation? Right, my idea is that CEO incentives cause the CEO to work harder and be more innovative. But it could be that causality is in the other direction. So it could be that the CEO knows how well her company is going to be performing. And if she knows that the company is going to do well, she will go to her board and say, give me stock. And if she knows that it's going to be bad, then she says, give me cash. So it's future performance that drives current pay rather than the other way around. So how did this study get around that? Well, what they looked at is they said, well, if indeed causality is from incentives to performance, then this will be stronger in settings in which the CEO is likelier to slack. So if there's weak product market competition, if there's few institutional investors, if there's weak governance, and indeed they found in all of those settings, the relationship was stronger, suggesting that the former was causing the latter. Mm. And can we extrapolate that into the sort of the restricted stock model? I mean, is there a danger that those findings were driven either by smaller companies or companies with strong founder shareholdings, you know, as opposed to being applicable across the general universe of companies? Or or do you think we can extrapolate? So that finding was a a large scale study. It looked at hundreds of companies across a 23 year period. So I do think it's one which generally holds. But the one thing that you might be sceptical of is that looked at stock ownership, but it didn't distinguish between long-term stock and short-term stock. So if we are indeed to try to advocate restricted stock in particular, we need to look at different evidence. And so this is the second study that I was thinking of, which is by Carolina Flammer, who you might remember from episode two, who looked at causal evidence of shareholder proposals on ESG and stock returns, and her colleague Tima Bansell. And she did a very similar study this time, where she looked at shareholder proposals, but not proposals to improve human rights, but proposals to put in long-term pay. She uses the same causal um, strategy known as a regression discontinuity that we discussed in episode two, so I won't repeat that here. Instead, I'll just go to the bottom line. What she found was that when companies put in long-term share plans, what do you think happened to performance in terms of profitability? It actually went down. But it only went down in the short term. In the long term, it rebounded. And so the interpretation here is when the CEO knew that she was being paid for the long term, she could engage in investment and she didn't need to worry so much about hitting quarterly earnings targets. Well, what's even more interesting is the effect on wider society, which is what this podcast series is about. She found that innovation went up 
in terms of more patents being produced and higher quality patents. And she found that measures of ESG performance for communities, for customers, and in particular for employees, they all went up. So what that suggests is that the best way to treat employees better is not to split the pie differently, is not to cut the CEO's pay and redistribute it, because as we discussed, the amount of pie that you can redistribute is really small, but instead to give the CEO a slice of the long-term pie. And if the CEO knows that she's being paid according to the stock price in five or seven years' time, she knows that she needs to invest in her stakeholders because doing so is critical for ensuring the company's health and future in five years. I think it's really important to just reflect here on how we're using the evidence to make the case for restricted stock. Because I think sometimes people want to be able to point to a study that says, you know, these companies that introduce restricted stock have outperformed by X percent immediately. And of course, you know, the world's not not like that. When when you're changing practices, you, you won't necessarily have that sample from the past. But what we're piecing together is three really strong pillars for which there is good evidence. So the first one is that performance targets can distort behavior detrimentally and can encourage short-termism. The second is that stock holdings appear to be causally linked to higher subsequent performance. And the third is that increasing the time horizon of pay leads to greater innovation and societal benefits as well as not being detrimental on long-term performance. So when we piece all of these things together, a simpler pay model without performance targets using long-term restricted stock is actually pretty well supported by the evidence if we look at that evidence on a holistic basis. Would, would that be a fair summary? It, it would be. And that evidence is all, all those three papers are published in, in top journals, so uh, we can be confident about their rigour. Well, that's another great discussion. Uh, thank you, Alex. And um, to remind listeners, you can buy the book and, and access a whole load of supporting resources at growthepie.net. And in the next episode, we're going to look at what Pieconomics has to say about the role of investors in supporting businesses to grow the pie. So do subscribe to make sure you don't miss this and other episodes in this podcast series. Thank you for listening.